Hello again, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word, as we learn how to better serve Him as individual Christians and as a local congregation. This lesson that you're about to hear is an exciting one in my mind. At the Franklin Church of Christ, we're extremely interested in getting the message of God out and drawing people into God's family. And yet we're aware that there are sometimes practical and pragmatic things about the way churches are run that hinder the growth. We want to take a look in this lesson at the comfort levels churches reach, but not only those comfort levels, what we can do to get out of our comfort zone and glorify God by bringing people into his family. Open your Bibles and let's learn about the comfort levels churches reach. Have you ever heard talk of somebody's comfort zone? If you and I are talking and you get a little bit too close to me, you're invading my space, getting in my comfort zone, right? That's one way we talk about comfort zone. Another way we talk about comfort zone is perhaps on the job. And somebody is progressing along and they're doing very well and then they they get to a point where there's some things they're asked to do. And and I'm not talking about in a moral or ethical sense, but just, well, they're just not comfortable doing that. For instance, perhaps moving them possibly into a sales position where they have to get out and talk to folks a little bit more. And they're not comfortable doing that. They've got a comfort zone, a comfort level. There are things that they're comfortable doing that they can do without any problem. But then there's there's kind of like that barrier. There's that level where uh, they just struggle doing anything beyond that. And we see people and they're able to progress up to a certain level in their career and in the business world. And then they're going to stop because to move beyond that, they're going to have to get out of their comfort zone. Have you ever seen anybody that just kind of plateaued in their career because to move any further, they were going to have to start doing things they were uncomfortable doing? And again, I'm not talking uncomfortable in an ethical sense, just uncomfortable that I I just, well, I just have a hard time doing that. You ever seen that? And at that point, we point out to them that if you want to grow in your career, if you want to grow in your relationships with other people, if you want to grow in whatever it is that you're going to grow in, what have you got to do? Get out of your comfort zone. You've got to increase your comfort level. Are you aware that there are comfort levels for congregations? You can take a look at congregations and you can see the way they conduct their business, how they're organized, what's going on. And I'm talking about unofficially, what kind of goes on behind the scenes in the business meetings or with the elders and preachers. And you can look at that and you can tell just about how far they're going to go. Because to go any farther, they're going to have to get out of their comfort zone. They're going to have to get out of their comfort level. Now, church growth is by no means an exact science. But there are a lot of people that have studied churches, lots of churches, and they began to look at what exactly is going on in those churches and how much they grow, how many people they can bring in, and where they stop. And it's pretty amazing how typical it is. It's pretty amazing the models that you can see that actually say where this congregation is going to go and how almost, how accurate it is. We have set this year aside as a year in which we're planning on growing. This is a year of evangelism. Our goal more than any before, I mean, I realize that's been our goal before. It's not like this is some new goal, but that's, that's the one thing that we're going to put all our effort toward is, is growing and reaching out and finding the lost folks in our community and, and doing the things that reach the lost instead of just standing on the sidelines watching the big guy beating up on the little person like Max talked this morning and just sitting there watching it happen as 
the devil beats up on all the people around us. We're not going to sit idly and watch that. We're going to be attacking that and overcoming that. But for us and any of the things that we might do to do any good, we need to take an honest and practical look at how churches work and how they grow and what the comfort levels are. Because just like a person in their relationships and in their career, if they're going to grow, has to get out of their comfort zone, that's exactly what churches have to do. Get out of their comfort zone. Again, we're not talking about morality. We're not talking about ethics. We're not talking about getting out of doing anything scripturally. We want to stick with the Bible as our guide. But there are things about the, the mindset that churches have, the way things are done kind of unofficially and behind the scenes, that can hinder and limit growth. You get a comfort level, and they just won't move beyond that. And the only way to break that is for us to be able to see what they are, figure out where we are, and make the specific steps to move beyond our comfort level. Now, let me just go ahead and tell you right up front. On the career, when somebody starts telling you things that are going to get you out of your comfort zone, do you like that? Do you sit back and say, Oh, man, I'm so glad you told me that. Oh, I'm happy about that. Oh, I know that's going to work. Do you ever say that? You sit back and say, oh, I'm sure that might work, but I'm not going to try it. <laughs> Until you hear it several times, and then we break out. I'm just going to tell you, we're going to talk about some things, and I imagine, uh, at least for some of us, when we get done, we're going to say that wasn't very comfortable. But that's the whole point. We're trying to get out of our comfort zone, go beyond our comfort level. We want to begin by just noting some of the common major classes of comfort levels that churches reach. We're going to notice four of them, and then we're going to take a look at the level that we ought to be at in order to grow. The first level that uh, modern churches reach is called the matriarch or the patriarch church. Uh, Here in this congregation, the leadership is made up of one family. As we go through these, I want you to say in your mind if you know of any congregations that are like this. And then I want you to think as we go through these where you think we are. Have you ever seen a congregation that the leadership, in fact, the congregation itself seemed to be mostly made up of one family And then there were a few hangers-on that really got along with that family really well. And despite the fact that we we know how a church ought to be organized, what's happening unofficially is there's a a matriarch or a patriarch around there somewhere, a father figure or a mother figure that's calling the shots. They're the ones that, that, whether it's happening in a business meeting or outside of the business meeting, they're the one that everything goes back to. Now what happens is, this congregation, they typically are very overconfident and very arrogant about where the church is going to go because that one leader, that patriarch or matriarch, believes that they know everything about how a church ought to be run and about how to make the church grow. And so they're absolutely sure it's going to. And when they look around at other churches that are growing, they're absolutely sure they must be doing something wrong because they're not doing it the way the matriarch or patriarch would. But they've got this one small family that's, that's doing everything. They're overconfident. The limit is going to be about 40. It typically just stops at about 40. You're not going to get much beyond that. Maybe up to 50, but usually they're going to drop around and hover between 30 and 40. Have you ever seen churches that were like that? That just, for some reason, they just never seem to get past 30, 40, 50 members? Despite how confident they were that they were going to grow, despite the person who knew all about how it was supposed to work, there's a reason why they never get beyond that. And the reason, and it's, it's subconscious. I don't think there's anybody in any one of these churches that consciously say these things out loud, but subconsciously, the matriarch or the patriarch feels threatened by other leaders that come in. And they're not willing to let go of that leadership to trust others. And so, if anybody else comes in that might be able to help them to break through that comfort zone, they they don't trust them, and eventually they run them off. I'm sure, oh yes, it was obviously for doctrinal reasons. It's always for doctrinal reasons. But they're going to end up pushing them aside. 
And the larger the congregation gets, the harder it is for that one person to control everybody. And so subconsciously, again, I don't think anybody consciously says we're not going to get any bigger than 30 or 40 members, but subconsciously the growth is limited because of the way the, the, way the, the congregation is run. And they're not ever going to get beyond that. What do these congregations need to do to grow? To grow, the dominant family's got to learn to trust others. The, the dominant family, the patriarch and the matriarch, has to learn to look at other Christians and realize, you know what? They are just like me. They want to go to heaven. They want to serve God. They want to do things the Bible way, just like I do. I'm going to trust them. And let's start working together and break out there and allow other leaders to come in and challenge the congregation to grow and be more that's been to get outside of its comfort zone. If they do that, they might progress to the next level, which we're going to call the one-group church. The one-group church has two or three leaders and perhaps a few quiet workers. But basically what they have is one group of people that try to be really close to one another. This is one of the temptations in congregations is the idea that everybody in a congregation is supposed to know everybody else really well. And I'm supposed to be known by everybody and I'm supposed to know everybody. And whenever we're going to do anything, it's going to be, we've got to invite everybody to do it because we're afraid we might leave somebody out and their feelings will get hurt. And so basically you have one group, one social group, and a few hangers on on the side. Are you aware, though, that the difficult thing there is that I can really only maintain, and this is if I work really hard, I can really only maintain about 70 of those kind of relationships. And even that's not going to be extremely close. But if we have that idea that everybody is supposed to be involved in everything in the world, and everybody is supposed to do everything together, and everybody is supposed to know everybody, then you're going to get to about 70 members. Sometimes the church will get up to about 100, maybe a little bit over, but you'll watch them. They'll almost always come back down to that, and then they'll get up and start moving. It'll happen over and over again. Have you ever seen a congregation? You looked at them and you said, man, that's a tight-knit group of people. They're awesome. They love each other. They're doing things together all the time, and they never get past 100 members. And you just wonder, you just can't understand why. Well, it's because the dynamics of the way the congregation is working just doesn't allow for it. Because you just can't, you can't maintain those kind of relationships with people beyond that. So growth is limited because we can only maintain so many people with a one-group mentality. To grow, the church has got to allow for open subgroups. Now, we're not talking about cliques. We're not talking about having five or six little sub-congregations within the congregation that, doesn't, that don't have anything to do with each other. We're just pointing out that we're, we're going to learn about the division of labor and not everybody's going to do everything. And every time somebody has something at their house, they don't have to invite everybody. And we're not going to accuse them of being elitist. We've got to learn to, to open up like that. Have you ever seen churches like this? If they're going to grow, they've got to learn to open up and allow for that uh, flexibility as it grows. If they break through that, they'll probably get to the third level. The third level is what we would call a preacher-dominant congregation. A lot of times in this congregation, what you'll see is multiple leaders. There'll be more than one leader, but they don't have a whole lot of experience. And so what they're relying on is getting that preacher to come in and show them where to go and what to do. And kind of be that beacon that leads the way. And what that means is the church rises and falls based on what kind of preacher they get. They get a really good, hard-working preacher, things are going to move forward. If they get a really lazy bum, things are going to slow down. If they get a, a person who's just not very good with relationships, things are going to start falling apart. I mean, that's just the, uh, the way that, that beast works. The preacher drives the work. Because most preachers believe that churches ought to have elders, most of the time you'll see these churches either having elders or, or pushing for elders. Because the, the, most of the preachers are going to push for that. Growth is limited to about 150. And the reason for that is because basically the growth of the congregation is going to go as far as the preacher who's driving the thing can work. 
And when the preacher moves in, his work will typically be a lot of studies, a lot of personal work, a lot of people converted right off, and everybody's all excited and it's moving. But after some point, all those people that got converted, now we're having to maintain them. And because the preacher's driving and there are a few other workers, you basically get to a point of, once they're saturated at their level of keeping folks in and putting out the fires that come up because people are dealing with one another, uh, there's no more room for personal work on that small group of people that are working. And so it, typically it's going to stop at about 150. It's just not going to go beyond that. Sometimes it might get up to 175 or 200, but most of the time you're always going to come back down to this spot. Have you ever known any churches like that? They might push beyond this, but then they always come back down and, and hover right around this place. Typically that's because when, when you take a look at how things work in that congregation, it's because it's preacher-driven. And the, the, the thing about it, even when you get the top-notch, best preacher in the world like Max, uh, you know, the fact is, he, th- that person is either going to grow old and retire, they're going to die, or they're going to burn out and move on. And then what happens when you get a dead preacher? Everything falls apart. And so those are the problems that you have with this kind of preacher. To grow, this church has got to train and develop internal leaders to run the church. Instead of the preacher being the one that drives everything, the preacher becomes a worker in the church who's doing his part of, of what the, congregation is, the congregation's work is. But there are others who are taking that leadership and setting that vision and running with it and pushing it beyond. And then they'll be able to break these barriers. If they do that, you'll probably get to what we'll call a process church. And all these names, by the way, I didn't come up with these names. If you start studying issues of church growth, these guys that have looked at churches, written down the numbers, uh, interviewed and seen what kind of things are going on behind the scenes, these are the names that they're giving. They call a process-driven church. Typically, this kind of congregation has good, steady leadership. They're growing and working based on the processes and the programs that they've set in place. They'll have a good Bible class program or a good new converts program. They'll have a good group program. They'll have, you know, you'll, you'll hear them talk about all the programs and the processes they have. They'll talk about the events that they have all the time, like their gospel meetings and their vacation Bible schools. These programs and processes that they have set in place that keeps the congregation moving forward. And so, because the membership has their faith in the events and the processes and the programs, the faith is not so much in the preacher. And a lot of times, preachers can come and go in that congregation, and it's, it's not going to be a problem. It'll move right along. And if a, if a dud comes in, they'll figure out he's not going to work real well, and after a year or two, he's gone, and maybe there's a little dip, but no big deal, because the processes are in place. A congregation like this will probably get to about 300, and that'll be about it. They might, they might be able to edge their way up to 400, but... And that, you know, they'll, they'll always come back and hover around about 300. The growth is limited pretty much uh, for the same reason that the other one is. Because even in this congregation, you're going to get to the place where uh, the capacity of the eldership and the, the possibility of the processes to become the, uh, excuse me, the, the eldership is saturated with their work, the workers are saturated, and the processes just can't uh, keep going. Because one of the things that happens, you ever, if you read a lot of business material, anybody heard that phrase, nothing fails like success? Have you ever heard that? Nothing fails like success. We find something and it was successful, and so what do we do? We just do it over and over and over again, even when it is no longer effective. And then we just sit there and look back on the good old days. When you remember when we could have a gospel meeting and 100 people would come and 50 of them would get baptized? And how many churches are out there still doing gospel meetings just like they always did because they remember back in 1955 they had a gospel meeting and 40 people got baptized. What, what happens a lot of times in those churches, the danger is they become institutionalized. Not to be confused with the false doctrine of institutionalism. They become institutionalized. And by that, the processes become the end 
and the goal instead of the means to reach the goal. They've established programs and processes that they really liked that worked at one time, and now they've gotten to the point where the goal and the mission of the congregation is to make sure to always do those same processes. i got to tell you, I love our fall focus. Anybody else like that? I think those have been successful and they've been great for the congregation, but we've got to be honest and open enough. We get to a point where they're not effective anymore. We need to stop them. Even though I'll do it crying uh, and in tears, we, we need to be willing to do that because the goal is not to make sure we do our processes. The goal is to make sure we glorify God and get His message out to other people. Edifying the brethren. And we need to do whatever we can scripturally to get it done. And if some scriptural method is no longer effective, we need to move to another scriptural method and not allow those processes to become the goal. To grow, this church has got to learn to divide labor, to train members up, to do the work, and to move the eldership from management to leadership. In these process churches, typically the elders, they are, they're like managers of the processes. They figured out how the process works, and they might delegate some of the tasks to other people, but then they tell them, here's how you do it. Now, this is the process, we know it works, we do it just like this. And so they, they've, they're managers, but they're not leaders setting the vision and the tone and looking and, and empowering others to get the work done in a positive way. These are the kind of levels. Do you know churches that have been at these levels? You've seen them? I think, I think we can see this. So, you know, even if at first you think, well, this is crazy. How could they figure all this out? Once you start hearing these descriptions, you start realizing, you know what? I've seen these. I've seen these congregations. Uh, they're all over. They're at different levels. And the reason they're there is because that is where they're comfortable. And to go beyond that, it's uncomfortable for them. It's, it's like growing pains, and they're going to have to go through growing pains. And then they'll get to another level of comfort, and they'll, they'll expand until that one's uh, filled, and, and then they're going to have to do it again. What level should we be at? That's, the, that's what we want to think about, the level that we must attain. Now, the name that we're going to have here is the name that I've given. Because I really think that the level we must attain should not be governed by any of those things we just talked about, but rather should be governed by the Bible. And so I call this the Bible church. The church that has reached a level that is working the way the Bible says we ought to work, and because we're working the way the Bible says we ought to work, there aren't any limits. We're just going to grow and continue to grow. I want us to take a look at some of the keys that we find in the Bible about churches and the comfort level that churches like Antioch and Jerusalem and those others had that allowed them to continue and an amazing growth that they continued to have. The very first thing is they recognized a division of labor. You look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 17 and 18, well, let's start at verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. God hasn't made us all to be eyes or ears or hands or feet. He's made us all to be the particular part that we ought to be in the congregation. We've got to learn to work where we're good. We've got to learn to assign tasks where, where people are good at assigning tasks. You know, we want to talk about uh, people that might be assigned the task of making sure our guests get the guest packet and fill out that visitor card. Well, the fact is, we don't want to get somebody who's scared to talk to people. And there are people who are scared to talk to strangers. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
And they're just different. They're wired differently. We've got to find what they can do. But if we're going to have people that make sure to get that, that guest pack and, and help people find a seat, it would be a lot easier for us instead of finding a person who is scared to talk to people and trying to mold them into that person that greets all the guests and get, finds them a seat and gets in their classes. It would be a lot easier if we just found people that naturally did that. Now, listen, I'm not telling you if you're scared to talk to people, you don't have to talk to our guests. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you're not likely the person we're going to put in official capacity of getting them the guest, pass, guest packet and making sure they find a class. Um, eyes and ears, we need to learn how to divide the labor. That's what we find in the New Testament churches. The Bible level that we must attain recognize multiple full-time workers. You know, I can't imagine. Acts chapter 11. I can't imagine what would happen today if somebody like Barnabas moved into a congregation like Antioch and just almost right off the bat said, you know what we need? We need another full-time worker. I'm going to go get him and bring him here. That's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 11. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, if you begin in verse 19, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. There were already some full-time workers there that were teaching and getting things going. And then Jerusalem sent Barnabas along, and then Barnabas gets there, and, and things are moving right along. He says, we need to get somebody else. And he goes, and we find him in verse 25, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. They recognized the need for multiple full-time workers. And so they, they worked toward that, which helped them grow and not be bounded by uh, comfort levels. The third thing we recognize about this is that they understood that while they had these multiple full-time workers, that the work didn't belong to them. In those preacher-driven congregations, what often happens is the concept that the work of the church belongs to the preacher. He feels that way, and the members typically feel that way. But that's not what we see in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see that the work of the congregation belonged to the members of the congregation. They had ownership of it. When they looked at where the congregation was going, they felt ownership to that issue of whether or not the church was going to grow. And the members realized it's up to what I do as an individual member, not me as the preacher, but each of us saying it's up to what I do regarding where this congregation is going to go. We look in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11 and 12, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Those full-time workers weren't, weren't added in to do all the work. They were added in order to equip the, the saints to the work of service. Who owned the work in the congregation? Who owned the future of the congregation? Not those who held an official capacity of elder or apostle or evangelist or deacon, but those who were in the congregation who were being trained up to minister and serve one another. They owned that work and they owned the future and they knew it's up to what we do regarding where this congregation is going to go. The next thing we recognize that the greatest growth came from house to house. We recognize a lot of big crowds in the New Testament. But one of the amazing things that we see is that they didn't just relate to one another in the crowd. There were congregational assemblies that they had on a regular basis where the entire congregation came together. 
But they didn't limit their association with one another to that. We find in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. I don't think that last statement is there in a vacuum. I don't think that's just tagged on there as, oh, by the way, this was also happening. I think that last statement is there because of the previous statements. Because they were doing those previous things, the Lord was adding daily. And one of those things was, while they were gathering together to worship as a congregation, to praise God, to hold one another accountable, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, they were also spending time with one another from house to house. They were doing things socially together, but they were also praising God together from house to house. And that's something that we have got to be doing. They didn't set up a program. They were just doing it because Christians wanted to spend time with other Christians because that was important. And the Lord added to their number daily because that was the kind of thing that they were doing. One of the other things that we find in the New Testament church is layers of leaders. Oftentimes we have this mindset that the elders are the leaders and that's it. It's almost like this view of, of what Moses had back, remember, when he, was, he would sit there and all day long he was the leader of the people and he would go in his tent and they would line up and he would, one case at a time, they would come in. Remember what Jethro said to him? Man, you're going to burn yourself out and you're going to wear out these people doing this. Do you remember what Jethro said he ought to do back in Exodus? He said, you know what? You need to train some other people to be able to take, part, take care of this. Train up some other judges throughout Israel. And that's exactly what he did. They had layers of leaders. It always came back ultimately to him as the leader, and of course to him to God as the ultimate leader, but they had layers of leaders. You look in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, I want you to notice what happened here. When we, we talked about this several times throughout the years. We talked about the Jerusalem church. Look at it again. When they came to the apostles and said, we've got a problem. The Hellenistic widows are being overlooked. Notice what the apostles did. Therefore, brethren, Acts 6.3, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit of, and of wisdom, whom we may cause to perform this task. Is that what it says? It's not what it says who we may put in charge of this task. When you're in charge of a task, what's that make you? The leader. We're going to take seven men and we're going to make them leaders regarding this task. Were they still under the apostles? Absolutely. Did they still have to do it under the oversight of the elders of the congregation? Absolutely. But they were leaders. Let me show you another passage. This is one that, that I think often gets overlooked. In Acts chapter 15, remember the debate that occurred in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And they ended it by deciding to send a letter. And the Jerusalem brethren decided to send some members from Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 22 it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, elders in the congregation. So it says, isn't it? Leading men. Not elders, not apostles. They're leading men in the congregation. Here is a recognition of leadership that wasn't the elders. 
I can only gather from that is that leadership development was part of what they were doing. They had men that they knew were just leaders. They were influencers. They were movers and shakers, but they weren't yet elders or apostles. Uh, they were people that they could put in charge of a task, and the task could get done reasonably, responsibly, and, and according to God's will. They had layers of leaders, leadership development. And so this is what we see in the Bible level of congregational growth. Division of labor, multiple workers, uh, work belonging to the members, not to the officers, growth coming from house-to-house contact, and layers of leaders. But you know what? This is not comfortable. Even as we say these things, as I'm saying them, I know that there are objections that people are bringing up in their mind that I'm trying to want to answer as we go along uh, so that I don't get jumped on on the way out the door. But these are things that we find in the Bible. This is what the, the church in the Bible was doing. So let's, before we move on, Unlimited membership potential, by the way, for the Bible Church. Before we move on, let's talk about some comfort zone obstacles. Comfort level that we have in in the way we, for lack of a better phrase, do church. For the way congregations are run. For the way we do the work of the congregation. Again, these are not issues of what's scriptural and unscriptural, but just issues of the behind the scenes, the way things work, and the way we run things and what we're comfortable with. So let's take a look. One thing that we're comfortable with is we're comfortable having the elders manage the church's work. Not lead it. While we'll make a big deal when somebody starts talking about layers of leaders and say, oh no, the elders are the leaders. Typically, we don't want them to be leaders. We want them to be managers. We're comfortable when the elders are the ones who manage everything. When we set up the processes, the elders are the ones that that have their finger in every pie, doing absolutely everything within the congregation. They're making all the decisions from who to hire as the preacher as to which is the best broomstick to buy to sweep the floor. And and we want them to make all those decisions, to to manage those things. What color paint's going to be on the walls? Which company should we have clean the carpet? All those things come back to the elders in, these, in, in most things. And we're comfortable with that. In fact, if somebody like me were to suggest, you know, maybe somebody else in the congregation who's wise and knows about it can be given a limit and say, look, here's our budget for the year. You make sure the carpet gets taken care of this year. And you get to decide which company to choose. Folks would say, oh, that's unscriptural, Edwin. The elders are the leaders. Do you think those guys in Acts chapter 6 with every decision on how to take care of the widows went and got to the apostles? Uh, Peter, we've got a question. We've got this new sister here and we were wondering, uh, you know, exactly how much food can we give her? Can we do this? Can we do that? If they were going to do that, what was the point of assigning these other men? Why not just go ahead and let the apostles do it themselves? You see the point? We're not comfortable with the elders being the ones who are the leaders. Who are, yes, the ultimate in, in the, the leadership in the congregation, everything, if, if it can't be decided by these lower layers of leaders, gets back to them and they have to deal with those big issues. We're not comfortable with that concept of the elders being the one whose main job is to shepherd the flock. That is, figure out which way we're going, which pasture we're heading to in order to feed and graze there and lean on the Lord. We're not comfortable with that. We're comfortable with them being managers. But we've got to learn to break out of that. And let our elders be leaders. Be the ones who envision where we're going to go and set that tone and lead us there and empower the members to do the work to get us there. Instead of delegating tasks and explaining how those tasks should be, should be accomplished, delegating responsibilities, providing scriptural parameters, just like the apostles did, I'm sure, in Acts chapter 6, and allowing godly people, trusting them to make scriptural decisions. 
and help moving the congregation on. Now, we're not comfortable because, well, what if somebody decides to make an unscriptural decision? Well, when things are working as they're supposed to, we hold one another accountable for those things, don't we? And that ends up getting to the leaders. So we're not comfortable with elders being leaders, vision setters, shepherds. We're comfortable with them being managers. Secondly, we're, we're comfortable when officers do the work. We're comfortable when the elders do the shepherding and the feeding. We're comfortable when the evangelists and the teachers do the teaching and the evangelism. We're comfortable when the deacons do the serving and making sure that the building is taken care of and all those things that they do. But we're not quite so comfortable when they start coming to us and saying, you need to do this. You ought to be leading some folks and influencing them and holding them accountable instead of waiting on the elders to do it. You ought to be out teaching some folks. You ought to be making sure that some of the physical things get taken care of. We're not quite as comfortable with that. We think, well, well, how should I do it? That's why you're the preacher. That's why you're the elder. That's why you're the deacon. Why should I be doing it? And we're uncomfortable with this on two levels. First of all, the elders, evangelists, and deacons are uncomfortable doing it on this level because, well, if, if I'm just training people to do the work, I'm not doing the work. And aren't I supposed to be doing the work? If I'm spending half my time instead of teaching other people, encouraging the members of the congregation to teach, there's half of my time that, that I'm not spending teaching. And then the, the folks in the congregation sometimes look and say, well, well, what are we paying you for? For the preacher. Why are you an elder if you're not the one who's doing all of it? Why are you a deacon? It's so so we, we have that comfort level. But you remember what Ephesians 4 said? Ephesians 4 pointed out that the work of the officers, elders, evangelists, deacons, is not really to do the work of the congregation. The work of the apostles was, and the work of elders is, and the work of evangelists is, to equip the saints for the work of service. And that's not to say that the evangelist doesn't do any teaching. But the evangelist is not doing his job if he's doing all of the teaching. The evangelist's job is to equip the saints to minister the Word of God. The elder's job is not to do every single aspect of shepherding every individual within the congregation. That's not the elder's job. The elder's job is to equip the members of the congregation to serve one another, to hold one another accountable to God's standards. You see how that works? We're not comfortable with that. But if we want to be that Bible level, that's something that we're going to have to break out and be able to do. We're comfortable with one full-time worker. We're comfortable with having one... And and we said, well, why on earth will we need another? I mean, look, you only have to preach two sermons a week. And and we're comfortable with that. We're not comfortable with multiple workers because we we sit back and we're, well, how are we going to pay them? Uh, We're uncomfortable with multiple full-time workers because we say, well, what work is there out there for them to do? I can tell you, here within the congregation, we had folks fill out lists of, of work that they would be willing to do. And just honestly, I can't follow up on everybody. I'm glad we had that many people volunteer. But there's going to be a whole lot of people right now that said I'll be willing to do something that I just can't contact because I, I, don't, I don't have the ability, the stamina to deal with that. I'll tell you what, when we look in the, the Bible, despite all of our lack of comfortableness with it, that's the way it was back here. In in Jerusalem, they started off with 12 full-time workers in Acts chapter 2, 12 apostles. In Antioch, we had the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came and taught. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 13, in Acts chapter 13, in verse 1, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, 
Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. They had five. Because they had five, they were able to send two out on the missionary journey. And notice how they went out. Not just one. The Spirit didn't say, send out Saul. He said, send out Saul and Barnabas. Multiple workers. And then when Saul and Barnabas had their little tick, when they decided to go their separate ways, did they go off by themselves? No, Barnabas picked up John Mark, and Saul, or Paul by that time picked up Silas. And so we see this concept of multiple workers. Here in our modern time, we're not comfortable with that. Uh, we're afraid that that's too much like the denominations and their youth ministers and their music ministers. We're not trying to do that. We're just trying to do what they did in the Bible. Multiple workers. Number four, we're comfortable when one person knows everything going on, knows about everything going on in the church. One person or, or one small group of people. We like it when we can call the preacher or the elders and ask them, what's going on with this teacher or what's going on with this decision or what's going on with this aspect? And they can say, oh, here it is. Bang, bang, bang. We don't like it when we call them and they say, uh, you know, I'm not completely sure, but here's the brother that's over that. Why don't you call them? We're not very comfortable with that because we have this idea that there's got to be somebody, there's someone somewhere who knows everything that's going on. There's only one who's able to do that. And he's in heaven. It just doesn't work this way. And can you imagine... Again, in Acts chapter 6, something was going on regarding the ministration of food to the widows. If somebody called one of the apostles and said, you know, James, what's happening with sister so-and-so over here? He wouldn't say, oh, I know, here it is. He would say, you know what? You probably should call Philip about that one. Or call Stephen about that one. I bet he knows the answer to that question. And we're not comfortable with that. We're not Again, because we want the elders to be managers. We want them to know every single thing. And if we do that, we're bound at the limit where we'll ever be. Because there's just no man that can do that. Number five, we're comfortable depending on the collectivity to accomplish everything. This is a big thing in our society. In our society, everything is supposed to be a church collective activity. We have the Bible class program that takes care of the church's learning and feeding. We have new converts programs that are supposed to ground people and build them up. We have personal work programs that get out there and teach the lost. We assign greeters who are going to be rotating to make sure folks are welcomed into the assembly. We have these church collective works. And we always do them, and, and I'm, I'm all for a lot of them. We do them out of a sense that we want to make sure nobody gets dropped through the cracks. You know, if it's everybody's job, it's nobody's job, so we better assign it. And I believe all of that. But one of the problems is when we start having a church collective assignment on it, too often there are too many individuals that say, oh, I'm not responsible. And allow things to, to bypass them because the church is doing that. Now, sadly, in our society, because there's so much emphasis on the church collectivity, there's a lot of unscriptural things that are now being done by churches that individuals ought to be doing. But my point here is not about whether or not it's scriptural for the church to be doing it or not. My point is that when it comes to the work of evangelism, it's great if a church has a personal work program, but who's supposed to be doing the personal evangelism? It's great if a church has a Bible class program, but who's supposed to be doing Bible study? It's great if a church has a new converse program, but who's supposed to be helping Christians grow? 
That's something we should all be doing. And so instead of just feeling like, all right, I came to the services, I put my money in the plate, I'm involved in the work that's going on, the church is taking care of this stuff, we've got to realize, no, 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 we own this. This is, this is our work. I've got to be involved. What am I doing to make sure the work of the church is done? We've got to have that mentality. But we're comfortable. We're comfortable when it's just the church and somebody in the church is, is assigning a group and making sure it's getting done. These comfort zones will hinder us. I'm not saying they'll stop us in our tracks where we are right now. I'm just saying that in time, they'll stop us. And we have a tendency to believe, oh no, as long as you're doing enough Bible teaching, you'll always be able to grow. But we've got to remember that there are just dynamics within a congregation. And that, you know, there are people issues that have to be dealt with. There's just the working of how to make sure everything gets done, the budgeting of making sure it gets paid for. And all these things impact it. And sometimes because of what we're comfortable with, not regarding Scripture, but just the kind of the behind-the-scenes, informal way things get done, because we're comfortable with doing it one way, you'd be amazed how often that hinders what we can do in the future. We've got to be at this Bible level. We've got to break through the comfort zones. And brethren, I just want you to know that I believe we can do it. I believe we can do it. I believe that each and every one of us here wants this congregation to grow. Am I right about that? I think every person in this congregation knows that there are lost people out there. And even if we're scared and terrified about what it is that the preacher and the, event, uh, and the elders are going to ask us to do, we, we want it done, right? We want the lost saved. I know we do. And I'll tell you what. When we have it as our goal that it doesn't matter what it takes, we're going to do anything it takes scripturally to save the lost and to build up the saved. We'll do it. Even when it's uncomfortable. There'll be some growing pains. It'll struggle. There'll be some folks that rub each other the wrong way and we'll have to work through that. I know all that's going to happen. But we'll do it. And we're going to grow. And brethren, because of you, there are going to be people who tonight, on January 1st, 2006, are lost and going to hell. And on January 1st, 2007, if the Lord allows the world to live to continue that long, are going to be saved and going to heaven. Isn't that exciting? So my question as we close out, what about you? What are you going to be doing to be involved in this? Because we're going to do it. And we can do it. And I'm excited. Is anybody else excited about it? I hope so. I hope this lesson has been beneficial to you and has helped you take a look at the congregation of which you're a part to look at your comfort zone and help you to biblically get out of your comfort zone. Are you the kind of Bible church that we've talked about? If not, open your Bible, study it, and work to be what God has presented there in His New Testament. Here's what I'm convinced. If we do what they did, we will accomplish what they accomplished. If you have any questions about the Jerusalem church, about the church in Antioch, or about the church at Franklin in Franklin, Tennessee, please give us a call at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody has given you this lesson on CD or tape. If that's the case, please feel free to go to that website I just mentioned. Again, it's franklinchurchofchrist.com and download any of the lessons and articles that we have there. 
We have numerous studies, both in outline and audio format, and you're free to download any of them that you want and use them in whatever way you believe glorifies God and helps his children. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to him, but more importantly, may you richly bless God.